at this point, Jay, like, are you going to do another album or is it, or is, I mean, because we heard that you was going to retire last time. I mean, like, yeah. is there going to be something else after yeah. this? I, yo, I, I would like to do like a, 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 a straight black album. You know what I mean? No photos, no interviews, nothing. Just that, that's that's the only thing that, that I feel like I haven't done that I, I want to get out there. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know when that's going to come. That was Jay-Z at the pinnacle of success discussing possible retirement and the future classic Black album. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cole, and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Now, I debated when was the right time to release this one, but after riding around, listening to the Blueprint album for a few weeks, and then it now being 19 years since its release, it was time to step back and take a look at Jay-Z's first decade. It's false, man. When you look back on it, just realize the amount of material and the amount of time. Yeah. It's been 10 years. It's, it's hasn't, it hasn't been that long. This is Jay-Z, 10 years in. Jay-Z is one of the greatest success stories in music business history. I had the benefit of having a front row seat to his career and early success. So before we get started with this episode, I must remind you, if you hadn't done so yet, listen to the backstory episode number one, Jay-Z, The Making of a Businessman, where I chronicle the early days of Jay-Z's career from the Marcy Projects in Brooklyn and the release of his classic debut album, Reasonable Doubt up to the second album in my lifetime, Volume 1. You know, I'm originally from Brooklyn, you know? I started out this rap thing, me and my man Jazz. I did a couple of things with him on his album and things like that. But, you know, I ain't really pursue it like that. You know, I went away and got into other things. And then, uh, you know, a fellow by the name of Kane, you know, he was calling, trying to get in contact with me. And I came back and I did a little something on his album. You know, we was working on Sunday, and he went, you know, had his little bit of troubles, you know. And I was like, yeah, let me get into this. What's up with the album? Is it coming out? Yeah, we working on that now. You know, we just don't, uh, we ain't consummate the label thing, right? I might want to put on Rockefeller Records. Now, one more piece of homework is the Backstory Episode 16, Blueprint Hove, which I explored Jay-Z from his third most commercially successful album, Hard Knock Life through the Blueprint and Blueprint 2, the Gift and Curse albums. Basically, my albums like really deal deal with life, like Hard Knock Life and, you know, Lifetime Volume 1. This one is like the blueprint of my life, like all the things that shaped me, like growing up. You know, that's why you're, you're like when you, you hear like a lot of soul music in it, because those are things that I grew up on and grew up around. My mom's cleaning the crib with the windows up with Ajax and all that. So to get a real look at the history of Jay-Z's career, both of those episodes are the perfect backdrop for what will happen next. As I take you up to the 10-year mark of Jay-Z's career, he had done so much in this time period, and I was able to document it through many of our interviews. In this episode, I'll give you some history on Rockefeller Records and exactly what was happening with the label. This was sort of the time period where the label would blossom. You'll also hear about Jay-Z's supposed last project, 
the Black Album. Five with Pharrell, we did about three or four songs. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know how that's going to turn out. You know, I got in there with uh, Just, I got in there with Kanye, I did the joint with Rick, bringing Timberland in now. It just felt like it being the last album that I wanted to do it, you know, by myself. His collaboration project with R. Kelly and the public altercation between their camps. My name is on that, so mm-hmm. people are like them. You know, they're canceling right. tours and they're doing this and they're walking off stage. You'll also learn about Jay-Z's first retirement. I just felt like, what more can I say, like achieve as a solo artist. His then ascension to label president. We in the year, you know, my second year with the number one market share. Last year we was number two. The 10th anniversary of his Reasonable Doubt album. Oh, it was a beautiful thing, man. It felt like I was reliving the whole time period, you know? I wouldn't imagine none of, none of this was happening. Up to his eventual comeback album, Kingdom Come. It's a very highly anticipated album, which is great. Mm-hmm. Wonderful feeling to mm-hmm. be like 15 albums in and still have that type of energy. This is Jay-Z 10 years in. We are facing an unprecedented food insecurity crisis right now. Please donate to your local food bank and help those who need it the most. Log on to GetTheBackstory.com and check out the Backstory Podcast exclusive crossword tee. Every t-shirt sold will provide 30 meals to families in need with a donation to Feeding America. Follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at BackstoryPCC and on Instagram at GetTheBackstory. A lot of a lot of rappers they try to get put on before they can really get educated about the business. Like, what do you feel about that? Do you think they should get their education first, or you know, like go with the flow? No, I think I, you definitely have to know about this business because you don't want to be the hottest rapper in the whole world, and then the, the company's taking advantage of you. Mm-hmm. You know, the two have the two has to uh, it has to meet. Okay. That's Jay Z foretelling his game plan for artists entering the business. That gives you a taste of why he is so beloved in the artist community today as he has risen to mogul status and advisor to many of the most successful artists of the last 30 years. When Hove talks, people listen. We pressed up our own record. We had a record called In My Lifetime. We pressed it up ourselves, and we had it in the trunk of our cars, and we was taking it to, like, local record stores, mm-hmm. you know, and we was just putting it in there, hitting them with that, like, yo, if you sell it, you give me some money. If not, if not, thanks a lot for your time, you know? Okay, so basically, you kind of, it was like your own distributor in a way? Yeah, yeah exactly. All right. How long did, it, did the process take before you actually, you know? It, it, it took us about a year, maybe a year, and then uh, we picked up some momentum, and we had signed with Payday, but they was doing the same thing as we was doing, so we left them, and we got distribution deal priority then we left them after the release of reasonable doubt and we partnered up with def jam okay that's jay-z giving the quick history of rockefeller records in 1999 i interviewed jay-z for all of his early albums when i did the blueprint hove podcast i had not yet found the interview we did in 1999 which is a great starting point for this episode so allow me to take you back two albums before the blueprint album to December of 1999. What's up, Mohammed? Yeah, I love you, Jigga. I love you, Jigga. <laughs> Thank you. 
One thing that you're going to understand about Jay-Z, especially early on, is that he was really in touch with his fans. He loved that part of the business. He never shied away from it like other artists. He was beloved, but it had to be strange for him. We were two years removed from the death of two hip-hop icons in Biggie and Tupac. Biggie was a personal friend and mentor to Jay-Z. A few weeks before this interview that I'm playing from 1999, Bad Boy released Born Again, which was sort of a compilation album of unreleased Biggie songs. Keep in mind, Jay-Z and Biggie had done Brooklyn's Finest on Reasonable Doubt, and I Love the Dough on Biggie's Life After Death. There was also talk of a group between the two of them called The Commission. So it was surprising that there was no Jay-Z on the Born Again album. We spoke about that and how the loss of Big affected him. You and Big was peoples from the, from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm listening to the Born Again album. I don't hear you on there at all. Like, what, what's, you know, is it because you didn't do anything more together? or? Yeah, it was, it was uh, a situation where I wanted to, um, like, when me and him created, we did Brooklyn Finest and we did I Love It Dough. We was in a studio together and, you know, neither one of us wrote anything. It was just a okay. straight vibe. And I, I so off know, the I top wanted, of the head. Yeah, I just wanted to um, preserve that vibe right there, that memory right there. Okay, you know what I mean. Okay, okay. So uh, I noticed that um, you know you guys. I just a lot of people don't realize it, but you know in the in the videos in the past, you guys were really really tight. How yeah. have you been coping in this rap game without your partner Big? I mean, you know, for a minute it was you know it was difficult. You know what I'm saying? But I know that Holmes. You know, he wanted me to push on and, you know, to further this whole rap thing. You know what I'm saying? All right. You know, and on top of that, you know, what really, what really was the sad part about it, because we spoke right before his album dropped. You know, he was telling me all the things he wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? How he wanted to tour with this album and support it and everything like that. And I wanted to see that happen for him, you know? At this time in his career, Jay-Z had three albums under his belt. His third, which was released a year prior, Hard Knock Life, was his best-selling album to date, moving 6 million copies. He was now one of the most influential artists in the business. And with that comes the typical recording industry ritual of trying to duplicate one artist's success through other artists. You got a lot of artists in the game that's just happy with the you know present state of hip-hop. You know what I'm saying? Then you have some artists trying to push the envelope, you know what I'm saying? And we just need more more artists that's trying to do new and different things. It's just like a compliment, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. To see mm-hmm. people try to do the same thing you do, you know? And it's good because it'll make me move away from it, you know? Then I try to figure out something else new to do. His fourth album, The Life and Times of S. Doc Carter, was highly anticipated. So this album right here was more from an artist's perspective, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing else that I could do. You know what I'm saying? Already spent five weeks number one, broke records, won Grammys, did everything. We're just, while I was recording this, I just wanted to make sure I was straight with it. So, you know, whatever it does or however it goes down, that I'm just happy with it. His Rockefeller roster of artists was taking shape. The initial game plan for the label and other ventures were really starting to come into form. The pendulum of hip-hop was dramatically changing. It was like the rest of the country was mentally exhausted by the East Coast-West Coast feud and its aftermath. Hove was not a typical East Coast rapper, though. He engaged with artists from all regions of the country and built a high-level respect versus previous New York-based artists who had a disdain and created tension with artists from other regions of the country. Yes, the culture started in the East, but as it grew across the country, each region had their own version of what they thought hip-hop should be, And it really annoyed New York rappers because they felt hip-hop was being watered down in other parts of the country, so they deemed it corny. And in many instances, 
They came off with sheer arrogance and dismissal of their fellow creators. This actually is what helped birth West Coast artists' initial success. When MC Hammer blew up in the late 80s, he tapped into that frustration. They were all fans of the culture. In fact, the first 24-hour hip-hop station was in Los Angeles, and they played basically hip-hop from the East Coast. However, the first generation of rappers could really care less about any rappers outside of New York. Hammer publicly addressed it in one of his first major videos. We are in hard in Oakland. What? We are in hard in L.A. What? Cleveland, Chicago, and your town is on fire. What? 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 Atlanta proper. What? And in Miami, we are moving something. Hammer, you ain't hitting in New York. What? So what you gonna do about that, Hammer? I'm gonna turn this mother out. Now, when Hammer did that, the dons of hip-hop were run DMC. They were the biggest stars for much of the 80s, and they were pretty vocal about their disdain for Hammer. The reason why we say some things about Hammer, he started off his career just in Run DMC. He dressed you know up mean? three guys in gold and, ropes in and, his and, first, and his couple of videos. Stomped our hats, hats, you know, had a guy with glass, had guys looking like all three of us and disrespected us in two of his videos. So he knows that, you know what I mean? Yeah. When he seen us, when he got large, he seen us, he tried to apologize for it. It's like, yo, you know, don't wait now to apologize. You should apologize when you first did it. But it's cool. We ain't got nothing against you. You yeah. know what I mean? You cool. He said a little statement the other day about us being sour grapes and just beefing because we they asked us what we think about MC Hammer. And we said, you know, he can't rap. He's not a good rapper. Great entertainer. He's a great, great entertainer, great. but he can't rap. You know what I'm saying? You take away the jumping around, you take away 50, yeah. the 50 people on the stage with him. And he's not even he's not even doing the fake rap that he do. He got his homeboy screaming all his vocals and he's just jumping around. You know what I'm saying? And then there was LL, who was a big star at the time. And on his Mama Said Knock You Out album, he said, my old gym teacher ain't supposed to rap. Now, from a historical perspective, MC Hammer has the greatest selling hip-hop album of all time. 17 million for Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him. And Vanilla Ice will go on to have the fastest selling hip-hop album of all time. His 2D Extreme album selling 11 million copies. Both of these artists tapped into something that the original artists from New York did not. This arrogance will continue again as the South would rise to become a hip-hop power. No Limit in New Orleans, Suave House, Rap A Lot Out of Houston, So So Deaf would set it off, and eventually the city of Atlanta would become the epicenter of hip-hop and still maintain a lock on the culture for years. Unlike some of his peers, Jay-Z, as he would tour around the country, would show love and respect to artists and collab with them. Cash Money was the biggest thing out of the South at one point, Juvenile had a smash called High. Jay-Z jumped on that. UGK, Big Pimpin', would be a huge song for Jay-Z on his S. Carter album. And he would build new fans all over the country after embracing their stars. Right now in the South, they they're strong. You know what I mean? They got cash money and no limit out there. And Dre got an amazing album right now. All right. That, you know, that, that should give life to the West Coast right now. They haven't mm-hmm. been making noise for a minute. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And you, at one time, they had it in the smash. Right, right, know? right, right. So I think it's going to go back out West for one second. If you lived through that time, you wouldn't believe me if I told you that after the heated battle between the East and West during the 90s, costing both coasts two iconic artists, just a few years later, Jay-Z would be ghostwriting 
for Dr. Dre on his Chronic 2001 album. For the right price, I make your ish tighter. Jay-Z yeah. the writer. You yeah. were out actually writing raps yeah. for other artists. Ghostwriter. Ghostwriter. <laughs> she wrote the song for Dre. Yeah. Um, when you do that, like, is this something that... When you go and write for him, you say, if I was this rapper, this is what I would do? Or are you just yeah. writing from a jigger standpoint? Yeah, I'm trying to put myself into the uh, artist's shoes right there and see what, like, what the people want to hear from him, what I think this person is feeling at this time, you know, you know, things like that. To tailor make it instead of just writing raps that anyone could say, like a, a rap with no name on it, anybody could put their shoes in it. I'll just try to tailor make it. You know, to, for the artist. How was it working with Dr. Dre? Because I know you was a fan back yeah. in the day before yeah. you kind of blew in. Yeah, it was a, it was an amazing thing. You know what I'm saying? So it was just like somebody that you grew up listening to, even doing N.W.A. and all those records way back then, and to get a chance to do something. Now you only do something with him, but do something for him, and, and it, for it to be his first single. You know what I'm saying? It's cool. By the way, though. MC Hammer has a lot of respect and admiration for Jay-Z. You got to respect Jay-Z. I, I wouldn't want to be the cat trying to outplay him in a game of chess if I ain't a chess player. You know, because every move that Jigga makes is well thought out. But that man is not to be played with. He's not to be played with. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast, and this is Jay-Z, 10 years in. I remember that video. I remember that summer. Boy, that was the best summer. Yeah, that Big was in the right. video. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you come up with these concepts for the videos at the time, man, you wasn't really on some major labels. I remember in my Lifetime video, and I'm like, right. man, at the time, I was like, wow, this cat ain't even on like a real major right. label. How did you, you know, maneuver that? When we did In My Lifetime, we just like, we had friends, you know what I'm saying? That, like all that, all that stuff, like them boats and the house, those belong to people. That was like our peoples, right. you know what I'm saying? So it was, you know, we didn't have location fees. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to rent boats. Because the mansion was off the hook. The house, the house was there. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it, it was easy for us. This was a conversation that Jay and I had about the Dead Presidents video. I mentioned this in previous podcasts that Jay-Z was different than most other rappers. When he started, he wasn't on a major label, but he would have these extravagant videos in exotic locations. In this 1999 interview that I'm sharing clips from, we went through all of his big songs up until that point. Jay, I showed you the list of songs that I have for you. Yeah. We about to dig in the crates and just take these yeah. people back, Let's all right? Take through it. Take all right? Through so, it. no, as you look at all the song titles and as you, as you reminisce, wow. what does it make you think about, man? I got a lot of hot records. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hot joints on there. All right? It was around this time he kept mentioning the, the Dynasty. That's what it's called. Me, Benny Siegel, Memphis Blake, Million. You know, okay. And when, when will that be coming? We try to get out this summer, all right? Should start working on it probably like the end of January. Rockefeller was really becoming a force in the business. And the next phase of projects in the 2000s would take the company to another level. I asked Jay in 1999 about being a successful artist and trying to run a label at the same time. That had to be difficult. I have, you know, great partners. My man Dame Dash and my man Big, you know, helped me out. And I got a partnership with Def Jam. It helps out. It keeps you burden. At this point, he had several albums under his belt. He was the biggest artist in hip-hop, well-respected in music circles, as he was building the Rockefeller empire. He also had the luxury of having a cachet of massive hits. What was the gravity of that moment for him? It's just an affirmation. Like, right now I'm looking at like, yeah... 
You know what I mean? I, I did the right thing because a lot of times I take chances with the records I make. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. for the real emotion, it was the first time, like when Ain't No first exploded. I was in a Palladium one time and I just seen people rushing on the floor and knocking each other down. I was like, I just stood there and watched the whole thing. Like, mm -hmm. till the song went off, I was just in the corner watching. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. Initially, the plan for Rockefeller Records was to release artists that would continue to enhance the brand. But so much more has yet to happen. Similar to Death Row, Bad Boy, and No Limit, which were huge, big brand names built off of the success of standalone rappers and combined with super producers and creators like Dr. Dre, Puff Daddy, and then there was Master P, who had the best distribution deal in the history of hip-hop. He was getting an 85% royalty rate and sold over 75 million albums. You do the math. That's almost a billion dollars in equity. Hove, Dame, and Biggs were partners focused on making Rockefeller a similar hood household name. In 1997, they released the first non-Jay-Z album with an R&B group called Christian. The album was ahead of its time and wasn't a big seller. In 1998, they signed DJ Clue, who at the time was the biggest mixtape DJ in the world. And due to copyright infringement pressures from the labels, the mixtape business was dead. It had to switch to a label model where everyone was compensated properly. Rockefeller released Clue's album called The Professional. And the first single was a remix to Rough Rider's anthem from DMX produced by Swiss Beats that featured most of the Rough Rider ensemble at that time, DMX, The Locks, Eve, Dragon. During this time, Rough Riders was also building their brand similar to Rockefeller off the success of DMX. There was also a rivalry between Jay-Z and DMX, who both came up at the same time in New York City area rap circles. And they had an infamous battle in 1993 in the Bronx in a pool hall, way before they would become major label mates and household names. There's more to this story that I'll get to later. This professional album from DJ Clue had a who's who in hip-hop from Puff Daddy, Snoop, EPMD, a new artist from Brooklyn named Fabulous, Missy Elliott. The album released around Christmas 1998 would go platinum and let everybody know that Rockefeller was a new empire being built. Irv Gotti was doing the same thing, just starting out with his own imprint, Murder, Inc., with Ja Rule, who was featured on Jay-Z's Can I Get a Song. So you can see all of this creative energy was building at the same time, and we discussed this moment in his career. So what's next for Rockefeller Records? I mean, you got a whole roster of artists. You got Beanie coming out. Yeah. You got uh, Emil coming out. Yeah. You got Bleak that's coming out again. Right. And is there anybody? And you Bing got Dynasty, uh, the album with everyone. And now, now is this all scheduled for 2000? Yeah. Listen closely and you can hear the blueprint of what was to come next. In the summer of 1999, Rockefeller would release its third non-Jay-Z album, this time from his Marcy Project protege, Memphis Bleak. The album, Coming of Age, went gold. They would also capitalize off of the success headlining the Hard Knock Life Tour. This tour also featured DMX, Redman and Method Man, DJ Clue, Memphis Bleak, Emil, and Beanie Siegel. As they were doing this tour, which broke box office records, they documented behind the scenes and released a movie, Backstage. This was the beginnings of rock film. This is the documentary of the tour. Everything, everything 
It happened. Everything. Yeah, it's wild. It's okay. wild. It's people okay. acting like they didn't know the camera was on. <laughs> but they knew it and they did it anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's real, it's real, it's real wild. We, we, might have to, we might have to shave it down a little bit. We don't want to get nobody kicked out of their homes out to sleep on the couch and things like that. <laughs> there was also Rockaware, which had become a very important clothing line for the culture. What was that moment like for him? Is it where you thought it was going to be, the Rockaware clothing line? Because it seems like it's just it. everywhere now. Yeah, it's surpassed where I thought it would be. You know, mm-hmm. it, I, I thought it was just gonna be something like boutique, you know, like like something small or something like, you know, you, you got, it's hard to find, you know, you sell a, you know, a few items every every year and that's it. But it's it's huge now. It's like a company, like a three hundred million dollar company. Whoa, man! Do you look back to when you were growing up in uh, Brooklyn and and see where you at right now? Did you have any idea? You knew you wanted to be a rapper, but did you have any idea of the success that you were going to have? You know, you have in your mind, like, you going to be successful, but nah, there's no way I could have imagined it or put a number on it or put, you know, I'm going to sell this many records or, nah, there's no way. I, it surpassed everything I thought about. So let me take you down the road a little bit further. It's now a new millennium. 2000 arrived, and this will be a very busy year for The Rock and the foundation for several personal and professional projects for Hove. First up was a kid from the streets of South Philly. After setting him up with several cameos, the highly anticipated debut album of Philly rapper Beanie Siegel will be released in February of 2000. The album, The Truth, had some production from a new producer by the name of Kanye West. His work on The Truth led to a studio session with Jay-Z that would change both of their careers. It was in this meeting where Kanye would play for Jay a bunch of amazing beats that would end up being the foundation of the soulful sound of the Blueprint album that would come out the following year. Again, if you haven't listened to episode 16 of the Backstory podcast called Blueprint Hove, you can learn a lot more about that album. Anyway, back to the truth. It sold an impressive 700,000 copies going gold. And for a new artist, that was amazing. One thing you would really start to hear a lot during this period was the Rock Dynasty, as the roster was established beyond just being on a Jay-Z album. The first female of the Rock was Emil. She was also introduced on the Can I Get a Song. Her soft but unmistaken voice would be on several hooks over the years. I heard a rap before, and I heard a voice. To be honest with you, it was like the voice that really that I, that really made me sign her. Right. She's voice, she's different. Right. She flows, you know right. what I'm saying? She has a lot of rhythm. But I didn't know how patient she was on record. Right. You know, new rappers, when they get on the record, they just want to rap, spit. Right. right. She's very patient on records. She got an ill flow and the voice is crazy. The Diana Ross to the rock. Yeah, <laughs> In 2000, Rockefeller signed her through Columbia Records instead of their joint venture with Def Jam. Her first single was a duet with Beyonce, who at that point was a member of one of the biggest female groups in music. Beyonce was also three years away from her debut solo album. Some say this is where Jay-Z and Beyonce first met. It was definitely the first time they worked together creatively, although not on the same track, but with Emil, who would release another single with the Rock Dynasty, consisting of Jay-Z, Beanie Siegel, Memphis Bleak, and her, which is one of my favorite rock tracks. Her album was an acronym for her name, Emil, All Money is Legal. It had modest success. That second track they released was the setup for the Dynasty album. This album was a change for Rockefeller because the previous four years, they would deliver a fresh new Jay-Z album. In 2000, Rockefeller decided to really define the talent on the label as a priority. It was a really smart business decision. 
So they released a compilation album that Jay had been teasing based on his young core of new artists on the label. This album, The Dynasty, Rock La Familia, actually was going to be a Jay-Z solo album, but they decided to expand to a group compilation and led with the massive Pharrell-produced Jay-Z single, I Just Wanna Love You, Give It To Me, which ruled the radio and the clubs for the rest of 2000. Memphis Bleak would release his second album that year as well. By the time we get to 2001, Jay-Z would release The Blueprint on September 11th. DJ Clue and Beanie Siegel would release their second albums. Everything the Rock touched was on fire. Clothing, movies, and music. This is where things started to get interesting for Jay-Z. Ah, I just wanted to call and say, Jay-Z, I love you. Um, I got all your albums. I think you are so smooth, you are so fly, and the question I have to ask is, why can't more men out here be like you? <laughs> no, Mama, thanks, I appreciate it. I love you. Jigga. What's up? as you can hear he was extremely popular on top of his game wealthy beyond his imagination at that point i was able to capture these kinds of moments because as a business model rockefeller and def jam insisted on doing promo tours around each project Usually, as an artist becomes a superstar, they stop doing interviews. Jay recognized the importance of doing a promo run and touching the people. It really goes back to his roots before Reasonable Doubt, when he was in the back of his car with Dame going from station to station promoting their music. As someone who is really still in this business today, I can say that a majority of artists don't do this. They love the number one records and the album sales, but they don't really see the importance of going to markets like this unless there was a check. Rockefeller would release five albums in 2002, including the Best of Both Worlds album with R. Kelly and the signing of Cameron, which may have been one of the sparks of the rift between Jay-Z and Dame Dash. Some say the origin of their rift can be tracked to Jay-Z's retirement talk. That annoyed Dame, and he would proceed to start signing a bunch of artists to Rockefeller. Cameron's signing came after he had a gold album on Epic Records, but he had a disastrous deal, leaving him dead broke. As soon as he got to The Rock, Cam ruffled some feathers internally, causing some conflict, because many folks internally were aligned with one of the label partners, Dame, Big, or Jay. Then Rockefeller releases Cam's first album with them, Come Home With Me, and it was a monster success. Rockefeller was now a huge label with the Midas touch, everything they released having tremendous success. But the talk about Jay-Z retiring, Jay-Z leaving the game, just kept getting louder and louder. And while Jay was out of the country vacationing, Dame offers a very internally disruptive Cameron a vice presidential role without consulting him. Cameron will publicly decline it, but the tension level between Jay-Z and Dame was ratcheted up. Meanwhile, business was good for the Rock Films division. They will put out three movies in 2002 that will be connected to real-life criminal enterprises. State property... Paper Soldiers, which starred a young Kevin Hart, and Paid in Full, which was the best-performing rock film, with Cameron making his scream debut as Harlem drug lord legend Rich Porter. So despite the weirdness that was happening, they were still having tremendous success as a company. Now we get to 2003, which was a pinnacle moment for the Rockefeller brand. 
They will release eight albums and a film. Rock Aware was a half a billion dollar business, but internally, Jay-Z was at a personal crossroads. He had numerous albums under his belt and a successful empire. I recall this moment in one of our interviews. I played the mellow but retrospective Lucky Me from his second album and watched him personally react to it. That's my joint right ah. there, man. That bring back the emotion, like what I was feeling at that time. Um, coming off the first album to the second album, how quickly people change. All right. You know Lucky me. Lucky me. And it was funny because when I threw the record on, you kind of like paused and looked up like yeah. just to reminisce on that, no yeah. doubt. He surely felt like a lucky man to have so much success. But there was still this thing about retiring. No way, right? This can't be real, right? I just felt like, what more can I say? Like, achieve at, as a solo artist, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm in the comfort zone as far as making the music. I can make music. Like, I know I know how to structure a song. You know what I'm saying? I know all the little tricks. I know when people are going to sing along. So when you're doing that so much, so much, it's so hard. And doing that 10 albums straight, as well as collaborations and soundtracks, things like that, you get in the comfort zone. I'm a young guy. You still got to challenge myself in life. I got to step outside my comfort zone. That's just part of being alive. And then, you know, when you're giving music, you need that back. You know what I mean? I get it in concert. You know what I'm saying? For the most part, I mean, that's the highest level. And people just singing your lyrics and, you know, that's what the music gives back to you. But as far as, like, the game right now, it seems like everybody just follow what everybody else is doing. And that's not rap. That's not what it's about. Rap is about being rebellious. Mm -hmm. if, if everybody over here is doing that, I'm doing this. Look at me. This is what I'm doing over here. So, you know, all those combinations together, it's, it's just I think it's just time for me to do something else. Retirement was now a real thing. And the Black Album went from rumor to reality. I went in Baseline Studios on September 1st. I started recording on September 3rd or 4th. When I got in there, I vibe with Pharrell. We did about three, four songs. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know how that's going to turn out. You know, I got in there with uh, Just. I got in there Kanye. I did the joint with Rick. I'm bringing Timberland in now. just felt like it being the last album that I wanted to do it, you know, by myself. The Black Album was supposed to just be an album that he was doing to release with no fanfare, no promotion, marketing stunts. But the momentum was building as folks feared that our main hip-hop superstar was leaving the game. At the beginning of this album, that's how I started. That was my thought. Of course, I was thinking, I'm going to make this album perfect. I'm going to actually sit down and write it. I, was gonna, I thought I was going to write it. But it's music, you know what I'm saying? And it's, and it's built off a of vibe. And I just vibe with the music. It ain't about, oh, man, I got to change that line now. It's the last one, you know what I'm saying? I just got to vibe with the music. It, it is what it is. It's music. I've been really focused on a black album right now. It's something serious. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast, and this is Jay-Z, 10 years in. What's up, Jigger? What's up? What's up with you? Nothing, just chilling. I've been trying. I wanted to talk to you all week, ever since I know. I'm all nervous. <laughs> look, Jigger, yeah. look, right? I know you're a busy person. I love you so much. I really do. I want you to go to my prom with me, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. I really do, man. Oh, yeah? Yes. I always made sure whenever I did an interview with him, I would give the listeners Jigger time. That's what I called it. And then we'd get a bunch of calls like that. So let me take you to November 2003. Jay finally released the much-heralded Black Album. And similar to the Blueprint album two years earlier, this project captivated a wide range of music lovers with production from Kanye West on the tracks Encore and Lucifer, the Neptunes Change Clothes and Allure, Just Blaze with the cinematic December 4th, which is really a song about Jay-Z's entire life featuring his mother, 
and the classic public service announcement, and it lived up to the hype. Jay-Z also announced one final solo show at The Garden a few days before Thanksgiving in 2003. This star-studded show would be filmed and turned into a documentary for rock films called Fade to Black, another great piece of art to watch to learn about Jay-Z. I happened to be at that show as well. Doing The Garden was always special, but for a kid who grew up in the projects in Brooklyn, to be able to do his farewell show at Madison Square Garden was special. Well, I mean, you know, that's a dream for any artist to perform at the guard, not just rap artists, any artist. This is a historical place. And me being from Brooklyn, I mean, it just means that much more to me. Fade to Black also gave you the first real insight into Jay-Z's creative process. Saw Fade to Black. You know how you always say, like, all you need is a, a beat. And then you just like, you know, you hear the you hear the beat and then you just start rhyming off the top of your head. But watching that in the movie, like especially You ain't never believe me, right? No, you was like, that ain't, he lying. Yeah. I figured you was doing it for, you know, just to just to hype it up. But then in the movie, no. you and Timberland and then you and Rick Rubin and how you just go in the studio and you just start rhyming off the top of your head off of a hot beat, man. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean it's a gift. I can't take credit for that. Like I don't even know how I do it. Just you know, it just comes to me. As we closed out two thousand three, many feared that was it for Jay Z. Who would fill his void? The center of hip-hop was already starting to move south, but it would make a pit stop in Chicago courtesy of Rockefeller as they would sign Kanye West as an artist. After his success producing for the label and a string of huge songs from other artists, Kanye knocked on every door at every label to get a deal for himself as a recording artist. But no one would sign him. Dame Dash always liked and believed in Kanye and told him to bring any deal to him before he signs. And so he did. And Rockefeller ended up signing him, and this would give Rockefeller another superstar. In 2004, they would release five albums, including Kanye West's debut album, College Dropout. It would go on to sell four million copies. Jay-Z would do a hip-hop rock mashup album with Linkin Park and would hit number one. He would also try again with R. Kelly releasing their second album together, Unfinished Business plus a massive tour with both of them. You know, we had the, the Fiesta remix and Not Guilty and hearing how those uh, two singles came out. We were always tossed the idea back and forth, but it was just our idea. Like, we didn't do a whole album together. And we creative people, so creative people create. It's like uh, mad scientists in the basement, you know what I'm saying? You want to get together and mix potions, you know what I'm saying, just to see what happens. That's how the lights were created, you know, the piano and and cameras, and that's how great things happen. Hi, uh, will you guys be touring together? Best of both world tours, come to a city near you soon. Definitely. In this moment, it was the biggest rapper and the biggest R&B star collaborating. The tour was highly anticipated, but there were several early production hiccups on R. Kelly's side that would cause big delays on the shows and create frustration between their camps that would all come to a climax when the tour hit Madison Square Garden for two nights that fall, which would result in R. Kelly leaving suddenly and Jay-Z finish out the show himself and then leaving the tour. We had a lot of different things that happened on the tour. We missed a lot of different dates. That became frustrating to me because people pay their hard-earned money and they wait 30 days in on the 31st date and there's a tour canceled and it, my name is on that. So mm -hmm. people are like, they're canceling right. tours and they're doing this and they're walking off stage. Then at the garden, it really just reached an all-time point where it could be dangerous when people start saying they see guns and different things like right. that. And it's 20,000 people in the building. Like, imagine if people would have panicked and people got trampled and different things like like that and you know that wouldn't hold well my conscience so I couldn't do I that no more that was the end of that for me the following night with no R. Kelly the show went on so it was a whirlwind 24 hours because it was another show the following night and with no R. Kelly 
and a star-studded group of people coming to watch the show, Jay-Z had to do it himself. The format was Jay-Z and Friends, and we talked about this a week later. He delivered the show last week in New York. You had Diddy and Mace performing together on stage. and everybody First time in, in five years. First, first time, time in five years. Everybody threw their rollies in the sky the whole nine years. I mean, it was, like a, it was like a throwback. You had Meth and Mary. Like, Mary seeing you and Meth on stage. I never saw y'all on stage perform, perform that or song. Not me either, by <laughs> wow. the way. That I was crazy. Seen, that was the first time, too. It was wow. just like, it was like a dream. Like, you was just sitting there and it just... Oh, like, yeah, du- Dougie and Flick, Slick Rick, too. That was, yeah. that was the moment for me right there. I was going crazy. Oh my God! How about like all I could think about was the clubs. Back then, yeah. I'm sorry. How about little vicious? That's big vicious now. Like I, I mean, you, yeah. you just dug everybody out. Big man. vicious. <laughs> yeah, big vicious came out. This second night in Madison Square Garden would end up being the blueprint for the rest of the tour. And I start off. I come on stage first. You know what I'm saying? There's no right. opening act. We all just we all just out there and we all just rocking. Mm-hmm. So you know. Let everybody know there's no ego with me. I'm going to touch down and touch the stage first. I spoke with him before that second night New York show and told him, don't cancel the rest of the tour. I was really talking about Philadelphia. I was like, please don't cancel the tour. Figure out a way to get it done. What's up? What's up? What's up, man? What's up? What's up? I uh, see we're we're at the same road again a few weeks later. Yeah. Well, you told one, me in the garden you said don't cancel Philly, right? I did say that. I did You told that. me in the garden you said you said don't cancel Philly, Jay. Don't cancel Philly. I told that what I say, right? Yeah. Give me a stage in the MI, I'll be there. It turned out to actually be a blessing in disguise. When you're in New York or LA, you could do these shows and all these stars show up and everything's great. But this is the kind of show that most people around the country would never see. And we talked about how special this was. Mary, hmm? so you on tour with <laughs> Mary, you, yeah. on, you on tour with Jay-Z now, man. Now, you guys, uh, I was at the show, the Saturday night show in New York. Of course, Mary, you came out, did your whole set. It was so funny because I seen Thug singing my life. You know, it was, it was, it was a beautiful thing, Jay. It was like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's went, how it's supposed to be, yeah. My life is like calming music for everybody of all races, colors, and creeds, man. That joint yeah. came on, and everybody was just singing the song, like, and singing it, Mary, like they were singing it. Like, they weren't lip singing it, they were singing it. Right. They always sing it like that, you know? So how does it feel yeah. to be on tour with Jay? Because you guys never really toured together. It feels really good. I mean, I feel like I'm a part of something really, really special. And um, people are very nice. And it's just a, a big moment, you know. It was. It's just a beautiful moment. It's a good moment for me because Jay-Z is the greatest of our generation. And, I, and I'm and i a fan. I'm, I'm a big fan of Jay-Z. So I'm happy. Yeah, the, the, song, <laughs> you know? the song Cry uh, is, is real ill when y'all do that together. Like, Mary, you just you just kill that one right there. The other night while, uh, we was doing it and uh, everybody laughing. <laughs> the other night we was doing it in, uh, in Jacksonville, right? Uh-huh. And she was going so crazy into the song. Like, I'm looking at her singing the song. That I, I ain't do the third verse. Really? <laughs> <You> <laughs> I got caught up. Uh, yeah, I just was looking, and she, she was going, and when she just looking at me, I'm like, man, I, I you know, I blew it. So she's looking at me like, go ahead. I was like, I really don't know where I'm at right now. I'm lost. I was lost. I couldn't even pick the third verse back up. I had to wait till the hook came back. Wow. But it was good. It was good. So in every market you guys are doing, you, you're bringing, like, extra special friends with you? Yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to make sure people are thoroughly entertained, you know. People pay their hard-earned money to see a show. And I not, not only want to bring them a show, I want to bring them more than, you know, they pay for. So I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, you know. Who else you bring into the show, man? I'm not telling you oh, that. Oh, come on, man. Mary's on. coming. Yeah, I know Mary's coming. 
Yeah. I know Diddy and Rule, I mean, but I know you got something in your back pocket. It's Philly. Well, you know then. Damn that! <laughs> look, Mary, that team must be good. I'm sorry. I, you know what? I apologize. That is very rude and disgusting. I'm sorry. Mary and Jay had so much chemistry on the tour, so the R. Kelly R&B energy with Jay-Z was replaced by Mary J. Blige. And as I was talking to both of them, I floated an idea. I was hoping that y'all could do maybe yeah. a, a modern-day version of Can't Knock the Hustle, like another mm. joint, or like, you know, mm. you know, we, <laughs> yeah. pay, we pay now, we not hustling yeah. no more, you know, something. Yeah. You might have to be in the studio when we make that, man. You, yeah. you got some great ideas got, on you. Yeah, I got some collabos, man. Mary and, and Jay, there's so much y'all could do together. And the funny thing about both of you guys is that y'all started around the same time. Mary was a little earlier, but you guys had kind of the same struggles. And musically, you know, you kind of evolved as artists. So, I mean, what better two New York artists to, to come out, one repping Brooklyn and, and one repping Yonkers, and just come out and, and, and put together a classic album. And don't call it Best of Both Worlds. Just call it something else because we let's let's retire soulful let's let's retire best <laughs> yeah, of yeah now that's else. yeah that's retired that's done yeah yeah because yeah. because we moving on but you know that you know as y'all on tour and y'all riding going through each other's tour buses and jotting down ideas you know jay's he's retired mary so like he'll he'll give you a couple bars on a couple songs but you know put a little ep together or, or maybe just put a single out <laughs> <laughs> as 2004 closed out it was the end of the first year since Jay-Z decided to retire. He did give us music in a tour, but who knew this was designed for Jay-Z to be an even bigger culture creator and change agent? I really didn't peep it until today when I started looking through your old albums, but you always go back to, to Marcy or I guess Marcy or whatever yeah, Marcy. and take pictures with the kids in your neighborhood. I mean, you don't, you don't get to see successful people in Marcy. You know, like, you know, when people successful, they do the natural thing. They move out. You know what I mean? They move on to a better life. You know, and then they don't come back and you don't have the kids. They can't, they don't see people that they look up to and be like, yeah, you know, it can happen for me. Mm -hmm. If I strive, I can do this. If mm -hmm. I work hard, I can get this. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And they don't have those type of people around. So I just try to make sure I'm always there. That's Hov talking about giving back by being around Marcy, showing the kids that live there success. He has been on the forefront of using his status and power to create change socially. But as we ended 2004, L.A. Reid announced that Jay-Z would become the president of Def Jam. The artist who grew up in the birthplace of hip-hop, whom ascended to its highest rank, now oversees its most iconic label. At that time, Jay-Z, Dame, and Biggs, who were partners from the beginning, owned 50% of Rockefeller. When he initially did the deal with Def Jam in 1997, they sold half the label to Def Jam for $1.5 million. Seven years later, they sold the other half to Island Def Jam for $10 million, and Jay-Z would now solely run the label as a part of its presidential duties. Dame and Biggs would start their own label, which was distributed through Def Jam. They also went to some of the artists left on the label and gave them the opportunity to align with Jay or Dame. Eventually, Dame would leave Def Jam altogether. The Rockefeller brand started to wane as well and was sold a few years later for $210 million. What's up, Jay? I just wanted to tell you, I thought you was the greatest rapper of all time, man. The Thank way you be twisting the lyrics, I get I get everything, man. Thank you, man. A lot man. of cats don't get your rounds, but you yeah. sick. And the, and the fact that you do it without even writing it down, man, it's crazy. I appreciate that, family. Thank you, thank you. Oh, my God. I got your name tattooed on me. Oh, my God. It's on my back, on my shoulder. My mom was so mad because I didn't even get her name. Oh, my God. I love you so much. Oh, my God. I really, really love you. I got the Jay-Z everything. I even got Jay-Z beer room sheets made. I love you so, wow. so much, man. I wanted to be a fanatic. I go to all your shows. I got all your CDs. Oh, my God. I appreciate it. I'm really about to cry. 
Jay-Z was beloved by fans as an artist, as you can hear. So to make that kind of transition to label exec, overseeing artists that were your peers had to be tough. Leadership is difficult. A great leader is selfless, inspiring on top of being competent at the job. Jay was already a wealthy man and he didn't have to do this, but he wanted to make change on the business side of music. Far too often, the people making the decisions at labels don't look like the artists they oversee. These same people profit off of black culture, but don't give back to the black community. It was an eye-opening decision on his part, but he also had a very successful legend in L.A. Reid to show him the ropes. Did you liken him to Mandela and Obama? In what regard? I did. Just the, the presence. And, when you, you know, it's the thing we talked about, people that have the it factor. When I walked into the room with Jay, when I met him, whenever I'm in his presence, I feel that I'm in, in the presence of someone extremely important, extremely important, charismatic, lovable, um, but smarter than everyone else. In the room. In the room. And this new leadership team would develop a superstar named Rihanna and the surprise signing of Nas. One sign of great leadership is humbleness, and you take your personal feelings out of it, and you do what's right for business. And he was able to put whatever happened between him and Nas to the side. And even during that time, when they were going back and forth, it was personal because it involved the mother of Nas's child. And the mother of Nas's child then puts out a book talking about both of them. But despite all of that, he signs them and they have success together. And we talked about it. I'm incredibly proud of Nas. You know, he went and made an incredible album, a very hip hop album. And on top of that, he made uncompromised music, which is incredible in this day and time. One and two, we just really wanted to show a positive grown man. You know, we don't want people looking at the culture of hip hop like we're ignorant. We mm-hmm. see what happened with Biggie and Pac and how people, first of all, hyped it up and then portrayed us as being ignorant and fighting over dumb things and yada yada but the same people that hyped it up are now coming down against us so we've seen how that whole thing turned out we wanted to show a different spin on it we showed it another way it can end do you think that the timing of carmen bryan's book is to to try to separate you guys again no i think it's to capitalize off the publicity that we already, you know, I'm, we out promoting our album. So, right. of course, people are going to ask us about her book every time in our interview. So, there goes another mention for her. Well, how do you guys dealt with this? Because it's been so public. We talked about it one time. Like, okay. it is what it is. Okay. There's going to be 17 more books coming out now. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's just how it is. You know, the copycat theory. Like, they see the first girl book worked, and now this girl is coming out. She's getting some attention. So, everyone's... <laughs> Everyone's a hawker now. Jay-Z also signed The Roots, which kind of expanded the roster of Def Jam. They would never sign groups like The Roots before, but Jay-Z saw the value in what The Roots were doing, and he brought them into the label. This was also a transitional time for revenue decline for labels as the music industry was struggling because of the internet. Artists that would once go platinum would now go gold or worse. Def Jam had a lot of artists who had had tremendous success in the previous 10 years, and many were not happy with Jay-Z taking over as president and would publicly voice their frustration. Me and Jay had a battle. I got his ass before I got signed. You know, niggas know. Then in the pool hall, in the Bronx. I fucked with him after that and had respect for him after that until he became the president of Def Jam. There's a difference between doing wrong and being wrong. And at one point, you were being wrong. Jay is a talented motherfucker. Don't misunderstand me. He is talented, but he has no heart. 
behind it. It's motivated by money. But I still maintain the respect because our birthdays are the same what? You know, the, your man is in charge. You mean? Yo, don't the inmates run the bill? I'm like, yeah, that's what it is, baby. And then you go and do that. You come down, listen to my shit, say, yo, you go. Oh, nigga, you. We ready. And then go on vacation. Real talk, man. I respected you, yo. I'm in my feelings about that. Real I'm in my feelings about that. I'm, I'm hurt behind that one as far as me going at homeboy look my bottom line my job is, is simple i need my records promoted people have to understand that when they talk about ll you talk about 24 years not 12 and when you talk about ll you talk about 1984 and me starting the label you know what i'm saying me russell and rick actually sitting there starting depth i don't begrudge nobody their success and anything that's happening in their lives and i hear a lot of silly shit about people talking about like i want a job up there like what part of me be a ll cool j makes somebody think i want a job at a record company because the reality is i turned that uh, job now 10 years ago and I'll tell you why just because you can bake a cake you know what I'm saying doesn't mean that you're qualified to run a bakery so as far as me trying to degrade homeboy or begrudging someone's success it's impossible because I'm successful they didn't promote my record I want my records promoted and that's what it is and I, and I met with them and told them the same thing to their faces so you know and as far as people tell me oh well he could have got this person on the phone I called you don't pick up the phone I fire a shot in the air hello during this time, I was also going through the same transition as once being a talent, now ascending to management and overseeing my peers. And it was hard to lead under those circumstances. And Jay and I talked about it. In any company, you're going to have your successes and your failures. That's just life in general. I think a lot of times people have a problem with me being the president and their pair also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, but it's really backwards, you know, because it's a really strange mentality because you rather work for a guy who doesn't understand the culture, mm -hmm. 50 years old, 60 years old. So it's, it's weird for me. Does that make you angry, though? Like, no, no, like... no. I understand what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, people, you, sometimes you condition to work for a certain type of person. And mm -hmm. that's just when, you know, you're happy. But see, I'm an artist friendly. I don't right. care. I had wondered how he felt, though. Many of these artists he looked up to like a LL or he came up the ranks with with DMX. Did he take it personal? What did he really feel about that situation? A lot of times I try not to take it personal because sometimes it's, it's personal things that's going on mm -hmm. in people's lives that the world will never know about. Mm -hmm. You're you know right. what I'm saying? It, you just never know what ticks an artist off. And being the president or being a label executive or manager is a thankless job. You know, when, when, when it goes bad, it's your fault. When it goes good, it's the artist's fault. So mm -hmm. you just can't win in that. So you might not even get a shout-out at MTV or nothing. <laughs> you right about that, man. <laughs> you damn if you do, you damn if you don't. Sometimes, man, I like I feel bad for you. They coming at you from all different angles. And, you know, you were on the morning show a couple weeks ago, and you made a point about, you know, like, at the end of the day, you really got to have a hit record. If you have a hit record, then all your problems, kind of like go away you're going to sell records if you have good hit records that people love that that everybody's playing you're going to sell records but if you don't you're going to have problems selling records and i think a lot of artists they they rebel against that i mean it's just the, the nature of the business not only do you need a hit in this day and time you need a complete album you need people to latch on to you i mm -hmm. mean if you look at the industry and where we're where it's at today versus even last year it's a different marketplace and, and people really got to understand that. People just put a number on something like, you know, what's good or what's bad in their head. But them numbers change. They change every time. Like before it was people doing 10 million. Now there's maybe two rap artists that went platinum this year. Two? Yeah. I mean, I want people to really understand that. In, in the past, it would have been 10. 
It's two. Don't get me wrong. He had a lot of positive results while president, but there was also the simultaneous changing of the guard, which came with negativity. You have to be a leader first and foremost, and you have to be an individual. You have to do what works for you. And if someone's in your genre who's opened doors for you, I mean, I know hip hop is a competitive sport and I respect that 100 percent. You know, that's how I came and I was raised that way. But it's certain people that you have to respect and you have to learn from them. That's one. Two, the easiest thing is to be negative. That's easy. Right. So for me, I'm a real dude. So I don't want to do anything to anybody. Violence or anything like that is my last resort. I'm not going around screw-facing everybody looking tough every day. That's, that's not real to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That's just not a real thing to me. That's your last resort. I mean, that's, that's reserved for really for, for self-defense. You know, and, and lawyers or any, anybody like that, if you're African-American, you're a black lawyer, you're gonna, you know you're going to have it you know, two times as tough as anyone else. So you just got to really just maintain your head. And you got to realize you're representing the culture. You're not above and beyond just being successful for yourself. You're representing the people. So you're representing for the next lawyer that walks in that office. They're going to look at them based on what you did. So everywhere I try to go, I try to leave a great impression for the next guy who walks in the door. People, you know, willing to work with them. In this particular interview, he was two years into the Def Jam job. And I asked him how he rated himself as a leader and how he handles his music budgets as an artist and a label president. You know, I have my successes and my failures. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm pretty strong. I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of the job I'm doing. You know, I'll give myself a strong B, B plus. We should end the year. You know, in my second year with the number one market share, last year we was number two. Mm-hmm. So, With a little help from Hove. A little, yeah, a little help. <laughs> it must be nice to sit there. You say, you know what? I'm the president. I'm going to put an album out. Now, when you're doing that and you're deciding on budgets and all that, do you give yourself a little extra nudge because you're the president? No, I can't do that. Actually, I pay for, like, with my video, mm-hmm. I'll go up to a certain point and I pay for it myself, mm-hmm. you know, just to keep things fair. A few years earlier, before he was dating Beyonce, and he was having his first major success. I asked him about being single and relationships. Man, I don't know, man. I'm not focused on that right now, you know? I'm just I'm just so busy with this right here. I'm trying to leave a legacy, man. And if I get a partner, you know what I'm saying? She, we can, uh, you know, that'd be right, good. That'd right, be a good right. thing. In 2006, he married Beyonce. He also would start an official comeback artistically. Jay-Z had announced that he was releasing a new album as president of the label. The album was called Kingdom Come, and this was a three-year time difference between solo albums. Was he concerned about the changing landscape? I, I can't control the sales. I just know that it's a very highly anticipated album, which is great. Mm-hmm. Wonderful feeling mm-hmm. to be like 15 albums in and still have that type of energy around your project. Mm-hmm. I can't control that part. All I could do is try to make different music, move the genre forward, you know, make, make you know, hot music and then let the people decide. In November of 2006, Kingdom Come was released with production from Just Blaze, The Neptunes, Swiss Beats, and Dr. Dre. It had been considered one of Jay-Z's worst albums, but it sold 3 million copies. Hove was back. He did a very cool promotion to build awareness for this comeback album. He went on tour around the country in 24 hours. He called it the Jay-Z Hangar Tour. Seven cities in one day. Atlanta, Philly, D.C., New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. He had several private jets. And in each city, he would pick a winner from a show, and they would get on the jet and go on the rest of the tour. It ended up going 27 hours traveling 4,000 miles. No one has ever done anything like that before. You know, we sitting in the studio just before the album came out, just trying to 
think of different things. My whole thing with hip-hop is to push you forward and do different things. So I'm like, I do a whole tour in one day. <laughs> uh, that's crazy. A little ambitious, but, you yeah. know, we're going to have fun. You're actually going to pick winners from every market to get on the plane with you and fly to the next markets that are you're doing? Absolutely. That's every, crazy. Everywhere we touch down, we're going to pick up two winners and put them on the plane and take them to the next city. So by the time we get to Vegas, which is where we end, mm-hmm. we're going to have a party on the plane. Oh, wow. Now, this is a G5. Now, what's the difference between a G4 and a G5 for those? 30 grand, <laughs> Nah. <laughs> you know, a little roomier, a little roomier. A little roomier. The jets, you know, twin-engine jets, just in case, you know, you know, any problems, you got another backup jet, and, you know, it look plush. It's very plush. He was 10 years in the game and had an impressive body of work. So I had an idea, and I shared it with him. All day, we are playing nothing but J records from Reasonable Doubt to Kingdom Come. Wow. So when you fly, when you get off the private jet, you need to turn the radio on because it's not only are we going to take you back, we already like up to seven, eight hours and we ain't really repeat, wow. repeating songs. It's like wow. there's so much music and we're sitting back and I'm like, oh my God, like I really kind of have to listen to the radio all day on Saturday. I need a whole tape of that day. Can you tape that day? I will get you a tape of that day. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be classic material. And how do you feel like to be an artist right now that a radio station can totally change their format for, for, for a day? and play all your joints and not really be repeating the songs over and over again. Yeah, that's why I need that tape. That's another <laughs> one of the milestones. I'm, I'm serious. Like, you know, you have certain milestones, like when you win your first Grammy and, you know, you win your first uh, BET award, like, and then you, you, the first time you go platinum and, you know, playing Royal Albert Hall, like, you have milestones in your career and be able to, to have that much material that... A, a radio station can play seven to eight hours of your music without repeating it. It's just an incredible thing. It's false, man. When you look back on it, just realize the amount of material and the amount of time. Yeah. It's been 10 years. It's, it's hasn't, it hasn't been that long. I would see him a few days later on the tour stop, and he made sure to remind me to get him a tape. And I did send him CDs of the entire day for his archives. Earlier that year in 2006, it marked the 10th anniversary of his debut album, Reasonable Doubt. It's amazing how far he had come from playing the background on Hawaiian Sophie and his introduction to the business. And we talked about that, specifically working with Jazz. He was the guy who introduced me to the whole rap business. Mm-hmm. He got a deal. That's when I was like, well, can I get money off this and, you know, tour and go to London? And I ain't know. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so it kind of opened you up to the, to yeah, the hip-hop game. Yeah, he was, the, he was the guy who made me believe that it could really happen. So when you were doing the music with Jazz and you had Hawaiian Sophie and, the, and his album that you had out, like, did you ever, ever in your wildest dreams think that you would be where you at right now? You got to figure, like, like with Holmes, he, he had a deal with EMI. Right. I didn't have a deal. Right. You know what I'm saying? I just was there. I was I was just with him. Holmes just took me everywhere. To, to London. It was sort of like, I don't know, man. I don't know what made him do that. You right. know what I'm saying? Oh, he, he just, just took me to out. London everywhere, you know? So it was like... uh that's what I was like, well, it could happen. We had some fun reminiscing on Reasonable Doubt tracks, and he told some stories about them. For instance, Brooklyn's Finest, his first song with Biggie. Yeah, yeah, that's my joint right there. That, that, that really started out, you know, um, like me and Big, like relationship, you know what I'm saying? Because after we did that record right there, we went to see Bernie Mac, and then from there, we was just cool every yes. day. Can't Knock the Hustle with Mary J. Blige. That one right there, that record is real grimy because, yo, the, the ill thing about that, like, we gave, uh, uh, I don't put videos in the street, but <laughs> we, we gave Ma- Mary out of our paper bag. <laughs> that was it. We, like, we was just started. Really? And we wrote it on a notebook. 
Wow. That, that was our counting. Now that's how we took care of each Really? Wow. Yeah, that was hot. Dead presidents. Yeah, this this joint right here is a very important record for us too. This was like the first record that we had got added to um you know our home station, that's right? Hot ninety seven. And it, like we was just starting a Rockefeller out the trunks of our cars then, and this was the first time you know we had to deal with um priority distribution deal, and this is out you know this is the single right before the album. So this was this was a monumental thing right here. We also shared a moment with a listener who was a big fan of Imaginary Player. Yo, Jig, I swear to God, I'm your number one fan. F*** what everybody else say. Um, can you just do me a favor? Can you just read the first verse of Imaginary Player with me, please? With you? Yes, because I want to read it with you. That's my right. favorite song. I have a cold right now, but you do it. Let me see. All right, you know. all right, all right, all right. How, how I start? Wait, don't say, don't say the curses. Leave the curses out. All right, all right, all right. I spit that over. That's some nice mother. Fed time following me round. Deep covered. You did money. I'm all year money. I probably, you ain't got a calendar, it's all their money. Uh-huh. I never changed money because uh-huh. niggas got strange money. Right. Knocked up, marked up, up there in the game money. Right. I got dumb money, uh-huh. double Excel money. Yeah. You got flash nail with Tom Reveal money. Uh-huh. I spit the hottest, you nigga that I got it. That damn South Master P body body. I got blood money, uh-huh. straight up thug money. Dog. That brown paper bag on your message, drug money. Right. You got show dough, uh-huh. little to no dough. Yeah. Sell a bunch of records and you still owe dough. I got nine. 196 In the summer of 2006, Jay-Z celebrated his debut masterpiece with a special concert at Radio City Music Hall where he performed the album from front to back. This concert was like a reunion for 20-somethings who were now late 20s and early 30-somethings who endured the booming 90s under Bill Clinton and the uncertainty of the country after 9-11. For the music industry, it was quite the reunion. Oh, it was a beautiful thing, man. It felt like I was reliving the whole time period, you know? I wouldn't imagine none of, none of this was happening, you know what I'm saying? Jay-Z would go on to leave his presidency at Def Jam and sign a deal with Live Nation for $150 million, which included a platform to launch Rock Nation in 2008. Rock Nation was more than a label. It was an entertainment company that covered touring, talent, and management. If you go back in hip-hop history, in the early days, Russell Simmons was overseeing Def Jam, but he also had Rush Management, and he proceeded to have the most impressive roster of rappers, regardless of what label they were on. Rock Nation was the modern-day version of that, but Hove expanded beyond music into sports. In order to do this new venture, Jay would have to buy out his recording contract with Def Jam, which he did for $5 million, freeing him up from any label commitments. He would then release the Blueprint 3 album through his Rock Nation imprint distributed through Atlantic Records. This album would deliver two monster top five pop singles, Run This Town with Rihanna and Kanye West, and his ode to his hometown New York City, Empire State of Mind, with Alicia Keys. The Blueprint 3 would go on to be a multi-platinum success, laying the groundwork for Jay-Z to independently release music moving forward, owning his own masters, and creating his own marketing deals. He would only use the labels for distribution. So what happened to Rockefeller? The Rockefeller label would eventually disband in 2013. Rock Nation is now the premier talent management agency in entertainment, and a label that also engages in social justice campaigns, including criminal justice reform. Jay-Z would also transition into streaming by purchasing Swedish company Tidal 
offering a better listener experience, plus giving artists a more fair royalty rate. Jay-Z continues to chart a path and inspire generations of entrepreneurs, not just in the entertainment space. He's now 25 years in. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Check out our Patreon page for exclusive content, including the Lost Backstory episode, Too Hot to Release. Support on the Backstory bonus level. We are facing an unprecedented food insecurity crisis right now. Please donate to your local food bank and help those who need it the most. Log on to GetTheBackstory.com and check out the Backstory Podcast exclusive crossword tee. Every t-shirt sold will provide 30 meals to families in need with a donation to Feeding America. Follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at BackstoryPCC and on Instagram at GetTheBackstory. The Backstory Podcast is a Pod is Good production, written, produced, and voiced by yours truly, Kobe Cole. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, Chuck D and Public Enemy. Well, the name of the record is Shut Them Down. I'm on like this low tempo tip, you know what I'm saying? Um, when we first came out with Bring the Noise, we was one of the first groups that really raised the tempo up. Now, Shut Them Down is on a low tempo. Um, everybody knows I'm suing St. Eyes and I'm in this big lawsuit and I hope to, you know, um, you know, see their neck bleed real bloody red till it turns green because I really don't care about them. I'm looking to cut their throat. Thank you for listening.